There are moments you have in life where as soon as they happen, you know they're going to stick with you for the rest of your life. My guest this week definitely had one of those moments. This is the Greatest Story Ever podcast. There comes a time when all the cosmic tumblers have clicked into place and the universe opens itself up for a few seconds to show you what's possible. With Keith Conrad. You know, everything is not an anecdote. You have to discriminate. Here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. I'm collecting the craziest life experience people have had in their entire lives. One person I spotted in the news this week who definitely fits that bill is Betty Wong of McLean, Virginia. Betty made a mistake while buying her lottery tickets online, accidentally ending up with 50 tickets for a single Powerball drawing, and won $2 million. Wong told Virginia lottery officials she plays Mega Millions and Powerball regularly, and uh, usually she just buys a single ticket for multiple drawings at the same time. This time, however, she made a mistake while buying her ticket online and bought 50 quick picks all at once for a single drawing instead of one for multiple drawings. And obviously it worked out for a nice mistake. Of course, you'd already know about the Ballad of Betty if you visited KeithConradMedia.com and signed up for my email newsletter, The New Side Quest. Every week you'll get a collection of thought and lull-inducing stories like Betty's. My guest this week is the senior pastor at Riverside Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida, and a former colleague of mine from my days in Milwaukee. Bruce Cole, thanks so much for joining me. Good to talk to you, Keith. And uh, so very early on in uh, in uh, the Greatest Story Ever podcast, I talked to uh, a colleague of mine from Atlanta named uh, Mike Stiles, who was um, he was infected with COVID like very early on in the in the pandemic when like it was actually. Uh, sort of a bigger deal, you know. Now, literally, everyone in my household has had COVID, so it's not uh, it's not quite as big of a deal. But at the time, it was kind of it was kind of my first newsworthy interview because uh, not not everybody had that experience yet. Isn't that kind of crazy that we're at this point in the pandemic when someone would say everybody in my household had COVID and it wasn't a big deal? <laughs> well, it's a. Uh, uh, my, my household is only two people, so that it, it's not as big of an accomplishment as, as it may seem. But, All uh, right. Um, so that was my first newsworthy interview, and, and I think this will be the first one that is actually tied to a movie that just came out. So, so that's yeah. very exciting. Um, now, now back in my uh, my days working with John Howell on WLS, I used to uh, do a segment every morning called uh, Tales from the Red Line. And, uh, uh, you know, just, just documenting all the crazy things I used to see uh, riding in on the red line uh, every morning. And uh, uh, you have a, a tale from the Eisenhower Expressway. Yeah, I do. As a matter of fact, you know, as you mentioned John Howell, I'm thinking this story is going to have all sorts of intersections because back in 1990, mm -hmm. John and I worked together at US 99 in Chicago, mm -hmm. the country station that still exists after all these years. So US-99 is going to figure into this story. Driving to work on the Eisenhower to US-99 is going to figure into the story. And this movie that came out Friday to apparently good reviews, I haven't seen it yet, Judas and the Black Messiah. Mm -hmm. So if, if, if anyone doesn't know what it's about, Judas and the Black Messiah is the story uh, of Fred Hampton, who was the regional leader and the Chicago leader of the Black Panthers in the 1960s and 70s, mm -hmm. um, part of the civil rights movement. Uh, and uh, so you have to go all the way back to, I think it was 
1969, the FBI had this uh, unit called the Racial Matters Unit. Can you mm -hmm. imagine? And, uh, you know, that's the Racial Matters Unit was about keeping tabs on uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and other civil rights leaders also, including the ones who um, were m possibly more intensely radical in how they lived out their activism. And Fred Hampton was one of those, as one of the leaders of the Black Panthers. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he's from Chicago. And the FBI wanted to get Hampton. And they did on December 4th, 1969, they raided his apartment, which was somewhere over near Maywood. So uh, actually, I'm in Forest Park, so pretty close to where I am right now. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, he was from, uh, Hampton was born in Summit. Mm -hmm. And uh, he grew up in Maywood, and he had a house or an apartment in Maywood. And the FBI had arrested some... Uh, the Chicago police, I think, had arrested this man named William O'Neill. Mm -hmm. uh, William was kind of like a, a petty felon. And they converted, the FBI converted O'Neill into a, a mole, an informer. And O'Neill, working for the FBI, infiltrated the Black Panther movement in Chicago and became one of Hampton's chiefs of security. Mm -hmm. And in that role, he provided a layout of Fred Hampton's house to Hoover's FBI. And they used that to raid his house on uh, overnight, December 3rd to December 4th of 1969. And they essentially murdered Hampton. Matter of fact, later on, investigators showed that the law enforcement uh, uh, personnel fired over 90 shots that wow. night. And they claimed that Hampton had been firing back, and it turned out that the holes that they claimed were from Hampton's bullet from his gun uh, were made with nails. So mm -hmm. this movie, Judas and the Black Messiah, is about Fred Hampton, especially those final days prior to his murder at the hands of FBI agents way back in 1969 when I was only seven years old. Mm -hmm. So what's the connection? The connection is that the movie is told primarily through the eyes of William O'Neill, the FBI mole, who's mm -hmm. played in the movie Judas and the Black Messiah by Lakeith Stanfield. Mm -hmm. So now that's what happened in 1969. Fast forward to 1990, January, um, January 15th of 1990. I was doing the late night show on US 99 in Chicago. And that was back when on music radio stations, we actually got to do four hour shifts. So there was like a 10P to a 2A shift. Mm -hmm. And I was doing that shift at the time. So it was probably, I don't know, it was evening of uh, January 15th of 1990. I'm sure the weather was wonderful. It was cold. <laughs> it was cold. I was wearing a coat. And after that night, I never saw that coat again. And mm -hmm. I'll tell you why about that, too. So I'm driving on the Eisenhower, and I, I'm trying to remember. I'm pretty sure it was between First Avenue and Desplaines Avenue mm -hmm. going into the loop. And um, a tractor trailer, I'm in the left lane. In the center lane is a tractor trailer. 
and it slams on its brakes. And it's right coming up, I think, to the Des Plaines Avenue Bridge. And despite the fact, you know, on all those bridges, they have chain link fences? Yeah. To prevent jumpers? Mm-hmm. Right. So somehow, someone had gotten around on the other side of that fence and jumped. This is graphic. Um, if you're queasy, look away. Um, the, 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 a body hits the windshield of the tractor trailer and flies up in the air. I slam my brakes on too. And it's like, I feel like I'm watching the filming of a movie. Everything just kind of went into slow motion. Mm-hmm. And the body landed face up, literally right at the driver's door of my car. Wow. Right? And so I get out of the car, and this African-American man is staring up at me with dead eyes. He's dead. Mm-hmm. I thought, I'm going to have to do mouth-to-mouth, you know, try to resuscitate this man. And uh, he was dead. It turns out that this, this person, it was about the third time in the, last several week, in the previous several weeks that he had tried to take his own life. And his family had been chasing after him. And before even the police got there, I saw this group of people running in the direction of my car. And it turns out it was his family. When I realized it was his family, I took off my coat and put it over his head so they didn't need to see his dead eyes staring back at them. That man was William O'Neill. Wow. Who, through whose eyes, the story of Fred Hampton in Judas and the Black Messiah is largely told. And I didn't know that at the time. What I kept doing was looking through the newspapers every day after that happened because it really freaked me out. I went in to do my show. You know, so after that happens, I go in at the time US 99 was in the John Hancock building mm-hmm. on the 13th floor, which you know most, most buildings in Chicago don't have 13th floors because it's unlucky. Mies van der Rohe decided he wasn't superstitious, so there's a 13th floor in the Hancock. And uh, I'm there by myself because it's a late-night shift. And Keith, I'll t- I'm telling you, um, I'm not a superstitious guy. I don't believe in ghosts. But that for a young guy who was just like a numbskull country music radio disc jockey at the time, I um, would like... If, if I ever had to like use the restroom on the 13th floor of the Hancock during my on-air show, I would go in there, and he'd be standing there staring at me. Wow. I couldn't get those dead eyes staring up at me from the pavement of the Eisenhower out of my mind for a long time, for months and months and months. And uh, so I kept looking through the newspaper. And finally, about three days after this happened, um, the Sun-Times ran a story. People could Google it. You could still find the story about William O'Neill from the Sun-Times in Chicago's Chicago newspaper. And uh, I found out who he was, and they described him as an FBI informant who had been in the witness protection program. And the fact that he had betrayed this iconic figure of the civil rights movement in Chicago, Fred Hampton, to the FBI, and the result that it had, the murder of Fred Hampton, had just eaten away at him through his entire life. So from 1967... To, or 1969 to 1990, for 21 years, he lived with this gnawing guilt to the point where he finally decided to take his life. And he did, and he landed next to my car on the Eisenhower. 
And you know, that was a long time ago. Um, here's how it affected me is I really, I grew up in New York, um, a white kid in New York. Mm -hmm. I knew about the civil rights movement in general, but I had never been motivated to learn more about it. So I started reading about the Chicago civil rights movement, especially, and learning about that. And then uh, fast forward four years, and I went to seminary, on the, kind of on the south side in Hyde Park, uh, and became uh, a pastor. And I deliberately chose that seminary because uh, their commitment was to make sure that we were immersed in learning about the South Side and learning about the civil rights history and movement in Chicago. And all that kind of in a weird way sparked by this kind of strange random event of, of this William O'Neill landing next to my car. And I sort of had forgotten about it until Judas and the Black Messiah is released. And it, it came out Friday. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think people can watch it streaming on HBO Max yeah. um, as well as theaters. And um, I started reading about the movie and they said, yeah, William O'Neill is the, the eyes through which they tell a lot of the story. And I thought, holy cow, how come I'm not in the movie? <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, now, do you think, um, do you think you'll, you'll watch the movie uh, now, that, now that it's out? I will. I will. I just didn't, uh, this, you know, it, it came out Friday. Right. Yeah. And we and weekends in a pastor's life, you know, you're getting your sermon yeah, together and all this busy. stuff. A little busy, yeah. At Ash Wednesday, uh, the, the, the Friday that it was released was the Friday before Ash Wednesday. I don't know when this podcast hits, but uh, it was the Friday before Ash Wednesday. And, um, you know, I just had a lot on my plate, so I haven't watched it yet, but I'm sure I'll watch it sometime this week. My brother asked if anyone was playing me in the movie. He specifically asked me if Gilbert Gottfried was playing me in the movie. So um, he was a nice brother as long as he lasted. But, <laughs> um, I'll announce visitation services for my brother soon. Um, yeah, so I haven't watched it yet, but uh, the reviews are great. Yeah, that, that's just an, an amazing story. I know that when I lived in Atlanta, uh, I was driving to work on, I forget what, which, which interstate it was, but I, I was driving to work and suddenly I saw a bunch of cars ahead of me like swerving around something and when i got when i got up there i was i was a couple lanes over but when i when i passed it uh, you could see it was a it was a body so actually a, a very similar situation to what uh to what you're describing and um that that's a that's a thing that's still like wh whenever it's dark and you know you're you're going under an overpass uh, which is obviously a lot whenever you're driving. Um, that, that it's something that still pops into my mind every once in a while. So I, I would imagine it's got to be this, the same for you. That uh, you know, even if it's not all the time, it, it's it's something that probably never leaves you. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It's been a long time since I've traversed the Eisenhower Expressway. Um, after being in Hyde Park, I was up in the the north and northwest suburbs of Chicago. So that was all the uh, Kennedy and the Jane Adams. Um, but yeah, if I were to drive on the Eisenhower, especially between First Avenue and on into Harlem, mm -hmm. and I saw those bridges with all those chain link fences with the idea that someone can't get over those things to, uh, to uh, tragically uh, attempt to end their life. Um, yeah, I, that would come back. And uh, like I said, it hadn't come back to me for a long time. And this movie just 
brought back all those memories. And then it caused me to reflect on how it got me um, sort of maybe sparked an interest to uh, learn more about something that I had as a young man, not uh, taking the time to learn about that I needed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, that's just an amazing story. Thanks so much for sharing it, Bruce. It's good to be on with you, Keith. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for letting me tell that story. Um, people tell me it's an interesting story. I don't know, but uh, I'll let people decide. If you think you can possibly top Bruce's story, not to in- intimidate anybody or anything, but shoot me an email at greateststoryeverpodcast at gmail.com. Gabatron.